This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we are wrapping up the introduction to God's story and setting up the narrative of the remainder of Scripture so we can understand what God is rescuing his people from. Yeah, so we um, have uh, been walking through this whole book of Genesis. We've wrapped it up, story of Yosef in the last uh, book, which means that we've done what we called the preface, Genesis 1 through 12. Uh, we've watched uh, Genesis 1 through 11, should I say. We've watched um, uh, God reaffirm uh, t- at least twice in that story about the goodness of creation, inviting people in that portion of the story to trust it, and we just have a really hard time doing it. And so the preface introduced us to just this whole idea of a new kind of world, a world where we see it with a, a new lens and a new set of eyeballs. Uh, we can see the goodness of creation. We can see a creation that's saturated in God and what he's doing, and then we can trust it, but we also got introduced to the very core of our human condition, and the core of our hum- human condition is fear. It's it's mistrust. It's, it's, um, it's, it's insecurity, and it hurts our relationships, and it can actually spread throughout families and entire lineages, and it can... Uh, even create entire civilizations that are motivated in the wrong way. So into that, uh, we were introduced into the introduction, and we met a guy by the name of Avram, and we were introduced to the family of God. And this introduction ended up being the rest of Genesis, Genesis 12 through 50. And and really, if we backed up and kind of saw the big picture of the introduction, the introduction was a place where we saw like the big ideas, the big major themes that we would say make up the spiritual DNA of God's family. Uh, the patriarchs, Avram, Yitzhak, Jacob, Yosef. Uh, these were people that, that understood in a unique way, in ways that we didn't see with Adam and Eve, in ways that we didn't see with Cain, in ways we didn't see with Noah or the people of Babel, uh, in ways that we didn't see there, this family understood trust. Uh, they understood how to love others. Um, and that was because they understood self-sacrifice and laying down their own life. This family was radically committed to hospitality, uh, and they saw spouses and wives who were committed to hospitality, uh, such a huge part of their DNA. And then the other thing we saw, even with generations that we feel like maybe struggle with the story, uh, guys like Jacob, uh, he is a major part. He's the father of God's people. He's Israel. Uh, because he has this stiff-necked chutzpah that God wants to use. And so these were the big themes that kind of uh, drove that conversation. Now, we find ourselves entering into the big narrative, like the narrative. Uh, We've done the preface, we've done the introduction, and now the narrative of God starts. So we have a couple of different roads we could take. And one of those roads would be, we could just flow right into the Exodus. From a literary point of view, we could go right from Joseph right into the story of the Exodus in the text, because they are intimately connected. And we're really going to be using some fantastic material. Uh, We've talked about Rabbi David Foreman before. Uh, His newest book, I just read it over the break, and just phenomenal. Uh, Just has added so much to the original teaching that I had learned, uh, or at least repackaged it. And it, it would be very easy to go right from Yosef into that story, and you definitely will see that uh, later, and you'll definitely see that that's true. But I usually do something, and I want to I want to do it in the podcast here as well in my study, and that is I want to kind of break here from the text, and I want to step back, and I want to I want to look at I want to look at the big picture about who we are for a moment today, who are we, 
And then I want to I want to look at for the next podcast or maybe even two. I want to be able to look at um, th- this this whole idea of Egypt, not in its physicality, not in its historicity, not the actual place of Egypt, but what Egypt represents on a bigger level. And and so a lot of our conversation, uh, and we'll talk about what's coming up next at the end of this podcast. But uh, some of what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time looking at. Um, who, uh, what is empire and what is the narrative that empire tells and how does that affect us in our story? And so we're going to, we're going to kind of, in a sense, hit pause for just a moment and kind of take a couple rabbit trails and ask some bigger questions. And then here in a few weeks, we're going to jump right back into the text and get right back to the, uh, Exodus story. But one of the things that we did that if you're purely a listener on our podcast, uh, you haven't heard, but one of the things that we sometimes do in our discussion groups is I will give a, uh, uh, a Haggah project is what we like to call it. Haggah was an ancient Hebrew term, uh, that speaks of, uh, as a, as a lion growls over its, uh, over its prey. The word for growl in the Hebrew is the word Haggah. And it's a, it's a word of onomatopoeia. It is a, it's a, the lion, I can't, I can't, I got a cold. I can't roll my G today, but it's, you can imagine that rolled G like a lion. It's not the roar of a lion. It's the growl of a lion as it sits hunched over its prey. And the scripture uses that word to talk about how we would interact with the text, how we would meditate. Sometimes the word meditate, like in Psalm 1, uh, he meditates on it day and night. That word is actually Haggah. And, and that's how we ought to approach the text. And so every now and then I issue what's called Haggah projects. And these are projects that are meant to be biblical brain teasers. Uh, it's meant to keep you up at night. It's meant to get you in the text and get you to start digging and to ask me questions. And to, I'll get text messages from people at one in the morning as they're trying to wrestle through our most recent Haggah project. So if you're a listener to the podcast and not a part of our discussion groups, you haven't been in on that. Uh, but a couple of weeks ago, we we pitched out our first Haggah project uh, for this Bema session. And that was, what is going on in Exodus 4? Uh, verses 24 through 31. It's a story of Zipporah. Um, Moses is going to be on his way down to Egypt to do what God asked him to do. And, uh, and, and into the story, God shows up to kill him. And Zipporah sees God, however that works. And she circumcises Moses' son, who's not circumcised, touches the foreskin to his feet and saves his life. And so a couple of weeks ago, we said, what in the world is that story all about? Like, uh, there's all these questions. And we actually do have a PDF presentation this week. So you can find that in the show notes there. Um, that might help you follow along a little bit here. But we asked this question, what is going on in Exodus 4? Like, why does God show up to kill Moses? Uh, maybe you even have some questions, Brent, too. I'll fire it over to you. Uh, how does Zipporah know exactly what to do? Like, she immediately jumps into the story. No questions, no hesitation. Sees God. Boom, knows what to do. Here we go. Um, like, what's going on there? Uh, why is Moses' son not carrying the sign of the covenant? Uh, like, what is that all about? Like, why is Moses' son not circumcised? Uh, did you have anything as you remember that story and think back to that? Uh, just like, where does Zipporah come from? Like, just just that more more background on how does she know? Right. Like, what, what experiences led her to to have the the knowledge and the the insight to 
to do what she did. Right, because she's not a Hebrew. She didn't come out of Egypt with Moses. Uh, this was Yitro's family. We say Jethro, Hebrew Yitro. Uh, Jethro's family is where Moses runs to when he flees Egypt after killing the Egyptian who's beating the Hebrew slave. Um, and that's where he meets Sipporah, uh, Jethro's daughter. And so she has this, uh, she's married to Moses for quite some time. She has this intimate relationship. But yeah, she's uh, she's definitely not coming. And yet Moses is coming. But And, and that might actually be a good segue um, to dealing with this Haggah project. We want to go back and just kind of remember Moses' story and where he came from. Because Moses was most definitely a Hebrew baby, born to two very Hebrew names, Yaakoved and Amram. Uh, Am- Amram, uh, I guess you could say. And uh, these are two names. Uh, Amram means exalted people. Uh, Yaakoved meaning glory to Yah, uh, the name of God. And um, and so these are very Jewish parents. And they raise him, and they don't raise him, they give birth to him, and then she puts him in the uh, the basket and then puts him in the Nile in that famous story. Now we know that he's, he was with the wet nurse for three months. So we know that he's circumcised because what day do they do that, Brent? Day eight. Day eight. So he's a circumcised baby. We also know that that's true because when uh, Pharaoh's daughter finds him in the Nile, she immediately knows this is a Hebrew child. Uh, the only obvious tell there is a Hebrew child. I love in the uh, old Charleston Heston uh, Ten Commandments movie how they make it like a Hebrew blanket. Like, oh, the blanket is woven in a Hebrew style. Yes, because that's the thing that's going to tell you it's a Hebrew baby. No, it's a, it's a circumcision that tells you it's a Hebrew baby. Um, so he's most definitely circumcised. And he has this Hebrew background, but he spends his whole life being raised in what house, Brent? He's in Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh's house. Like, imagine, what, what do you suppose he wrestles with, like, internally, his whole life growing up? Well, he knows he's a Hebrew. Exactly. Obviously. Absolutely. Uh, he's probably going to be reminded of that several times a day, really. Right. And yet he's he's being raised in the opposite culture. Right. And do you think that bothers him on any level? Uh, it's got to. Right. Because he watches his brothers, his brethren, his kin being horribly oppressed in slavery. And well, and maybe he, some of them even serve him. Exactly. Pharaoh's sure. House. I mean, the, the survivor's guilt, because he's not even supposed to be alive. Like, he's supposed to be one of the babies that was killed in the Nile. Like, he's not even supposed to have survived. And not only did he just survive, he he survived by being raised by the most powerful man on the planet and probably the best household that the planet had to offer with the best training, like the survivor's guilt that this guy has to carry around. And the identity crisis that he struggles with because he finds himself, he doesn't really feel like a Hebrew because there's nothing about his upbringing or who he is that that could relate to the Hebrews. But he knows that he is a Hebrew and he's not really an Egyptian. And you can see the heart that he has. He has this heart of God that wants to hear the cry of the oppressed. He has this heart of God that wants to, he wants to uh, do something about these Hebrews. And so one day he does and they don't even appreciate it. Like the second time he tries to step in there, the first time he kills the Egyptian, then he tries to help them again. And can you remember the response that the uh, Hebrews have when he tries to step in again to us? It's something like, are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? Yeah, exactly. Like, and who do you think you are? Like, why are you always, there's an argument between two Hebrew slaves and Moses is trying to mediate. And they're like, like, what in the world? Who do you think you are? Like, you're not going to step in the middle of this. And are you going to kill us? Like you kill, And he realizes, oh man, people know. 
and I got to go on the run. So he goes on the run, and that's where he ends up being for 40 years, uh, shepherding sheep in the desert for Jethro and meeting his wife, Zipporah. I, I mean, I just, it, it, the identity crisis he must have struggled with. And after 40 years in the desert, do you think like he had thought maybe he had shaken this whole Hebrew identity? Like he had finally run away. He had finally disconnected. He was 40 when he went into the desert, spends 40 more years in the desert. And then God shows up. Well, and it's not like he has been sitting out there meditating on the text. Right. Because we're still in the first part of the text that supposedly (laughs) Moses himself wrote. That's right. That's right. He's got nothing. He did, he didn't grow up with the stories. He doesn't know anything. Absolutely. So I just love to sit in this story and just think about the identity crisis that Moses has to be struggling with. And then all of a sudden God shows up in Exodus 3 with the story of the burning bush. And we don't have this in your slideshow. It's the famous conversation that many of us are familiar with. God shows up and says, Moses, I need... I need your help. I need you to go down. I need you to free my people. I've heard their cry. And Moses has got all these excuses like, oh, please send somebody else. Oh, what am I supposed to tell him? Like, what in the heck is your name? Like, he's just got, he's stalling like my kids would stall when it's bedtime. It's time to brush your teeth. Like, oh, no, what about this? What about that? And, hey, did you hear this story? And did I tell you about what happened at school? And, like, Moses has just got this long, and finally it gets down to the end, and he's just got nothing but excuses. And one of the things that he ends up saying is really interesting, and I think we've just kind of made uh, quick-draw assumptions on this. Uh, I'm in Exodus 4. I'm going to be in verse 10. Moshe said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and of tongue. I am slow of speech and hard of tongue. And which is interesting because I think we've always just went, oh, well, Moses had a speech impediment. But Moses was raised in the most uh, well-trained household on on the planet in Pharaoh's household. To think that he had a speech impediment and that wasn't trained out of him, uh, it wasn't dealt with, he wasn't taught how to live with it. Um, Now, Stephen in the book of Acts will say, he will reference Moses' speech impediment, but I think it's way too quick of uh, an assumption to just say, well, he, he stuttered or he there's more going on here. At least I would think there's more going on here. This doesn't make sense to me as I read the story. Um, so anyway, he's got some excuses. God eventually gets angry uh, and says, listen, I'm going to give you Aaron. Now go. I'm done talking about it. You're the guy for the job. Um, and then and then all of a sudden we run into this story with Sipporah. So Moses returns to Egypt and uh, verse 24, at a lodging place along the way, the Lord met Moshe. And was about to kill him. That's weird. Uh, But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. And at the time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aharon, go to the wilderness and meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aharon everything the Lord had said to him, or everything the Lord had sent him to say and also about all the signs he had commanded him to perform. And so there's this weird story here, and it raises the questions that we've we've asked already. Why in the world is Moses' son not circumcised? And I think it might be this identity crisis that we're talking about. Because for Moses' son to have taken the sign of circumcision, that would be Moses saying, 
I am a part of God's people, and my son and my descendants after me are also a part of God's people. And if he hasn't circumcised his son, I think that's evidence that he doesn't see himself as a part of God's people. He has this real identity crisis and survivor's guilt that he's struggling with. But we're going to probably want to find some more information or some more evidence that Marty's onto something and not just take that at face value. So we keep reading. We go to Exodus uh, 6, 5, excuse me, and we read about uh, bricks without straw. And we read about how Moses goes there. He does what God tells him to do. And Pharaoh essentially says, uh, no, I'm not letting your people go. And in fact, they're just a bunch of whiners and complainers. And uh, I'm going to make their work even harder. And we'll talk a lot more about this when we come back to the Exodus later. Uh, but but Moses walks out of there and he's, uh, go to the last verse in Exodus 5 here. Moses returned to the Lord and said, why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this not why you, is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak your name, speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people and you have not rescued your people at, at all. Moses says, oh God, come on, you can help a brother out here. Like you are, you sent me to do this job and it has just fallen flat on our face over here. And so God says to Moses, uh, Exodus 6, now you will see what I will do to Paro. Because of the mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this country. And so God also said to Moses, which I think seems to imply there, I think there's one of those broken, uh, there's one of those broken conversations. Like God's like, hey, listen, Moses, you're going to see. And Moses is like, "Eh, whatever. So then God continues, I am, I am the Lord. I appeared to Avraham, to Yitzhak, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. So he tells them to go back to Pharaoh, uh, to go back to the Israelites, to talk to the Israelites. And Moses reports this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him. I'm in verse 9, because of their discouragement and harsh labor. And the Lord said to Moses, go tell Paro, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of this country. So God sends him back to talk to the Israelite elders. And the Israelite elders are just like, nope, we're not having it. You're just here to cause problems. The last time you talked to Pharaoh, our life got even worse. Uh, please just go away. And God says, okay, it's time to go talk to Pharaoh. But Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Paro listen to me since I speak with, and what does your text say there? Faltering lips. Faltering lips in the NIV. And we have a footnote in the new NIV, which is really handy. Didn't have that in the old NIV. And the ESV actually translates this as it is. The actual Hebrew there says uncircumcised lips, which is a really, really odd phrase because you don't circumcise lips in case anyone is wondering. Uh, That's not how circumcision works. You don't refer to lips as being circumcised or uncircumcised. That is the oddest reference ever. And so when translators translate it, they don't even want to translate it in circumcised lips because it makes no sense. And yet I think in this text, there is a hint here. Um, There's a definite hint here that in fact, uh, we are still tied to this issue of circumcision that we were tied to in the the Zipporah story. And what I find so interesting is if you were to go to the very last verse of this chapter, it's this weird, all of a sudden they throw in two verses that sound almost exactly like what we just read. Like if you went to the very next slide on your presentation or just in your Bible went down to the end of chapter six, uh, the, the last two verses there. Now, when the Lord spoke to Moshe in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Paro, king of Egypt, everything I told you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with uncircumcised lips, why would Paro listen to me? But we just said that. And yet when you sit back and you look, in fact, if you look at that slide in your presentation, 
you can actually see the first reference at the top of your slide. You can see that last reference at the bottom of your slide. And what is it, Brent, that you find sitting right in the middle of these two references? Well, we got a big genealogy. A genealogy that's going to prove what? Uh, well, let's see. Starts up a Reuben. Something about Moses. Yeah. So it's going to be Moses's lineage. It's going to prove that Moses is, in fact, the person he doesn't want to feel like he is. He is, in fact, a Hebrew. He is, in fact, called by God to rescue his people, of which he is, in fact, a part of. This whole story is this massive identity crisis. So what I find, I, I personally have a lot of affinity for this story because I, I resonate with this story a lot. If 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 I'm right in how I'm reading this as a, an identity crisis and survivor's guilt for, uh, for Moses, I, I feel like I live in an identity crisis as well with my, with my Jewish heritage. I feel like I don't really belong to the Jewish community. They would never see me as being an authentic Jewish follower. I have a hard time fitting into uh, the Gentile Christian Protestant community. And I, I can just really resonate with this story. And a lot of times I feel like, I think this even bleeds over into my my academic insecurities, where I don't have these fancy letters after my name, and, and who am I to... And here's what I find so interesting about the Moses story. Tell me, Brent, is there going to be anybody else on the face of the planet more qualified to do this job than Moses? Uh, it doesn't seem like it. Like, here's this guy raised in Pharaoh's household. Here's this guy who knows the family of, of Paro intimately. He has training. He's also... Uh, he's also Hebrew. Like he, he's the only guy that's going to match all this criteria. He's the most qualified person God could possibly find. And what I find so interesting is God never enters into an argument with Moses about his qualifications. Moses's deepest insecurities are when you look at, when you kind of step back and look at it, are absolutely ridiculous because he's the most qualified person anywhere. And God never confronts Moses, says, Moses, what are you talking about? Like, let me tell you logically why you're the perfect guy for the job. God simply meets Moses and in his insecurities, meets him right where he's at and says, I just need you to trust me. So there's a statement I have on here. Uh, God is not interested in your qualifications. God is interested in your availability. God is interested in your trust. Like one of the things that we have to learn about our insecurities, uh, whether they're founded or completely unfounded insecurities, uh, God's not interested in our qualifications. And I know how many of us uh, are listening to this and we feel like we're not qualified for whatever reason. We have our insecurities that keep us from thinking that we're the person for the job. Uh, and yet, and yet God's not interested in that. He's interested in whether or not we're up for the job, whether or not we're willing to take the job. So was there anything, if we were to go back to that story, uh, the Zipporah story, was there anything that struck you as odd, Brent? Because I think it gets us into one last piece here before we're done today. Uh, yeah, I did have one thing that was interesting. Let me find it real quick. Well, okay, so leading into that spot where um, the Lord met Moses on the way to the lodging place. Right. Right before that, uh, it's the Lord said to Moses, and he just talks, and there's no response. Oh, really? Interesting. Let me go back there. So, and this is in chapter four, in the kind of the back half of chapter four. Um, so the Lord's talking and Moses just like walks away, <laughs> right? And then the Lord meets him on the way. Well, there's a lot of that when you look at that man. So, yeah, let's, uh, I'm going to pick up there in verse uh, 18 of chapter four. Moshe went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, 
Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons and put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt, and he took the staff of God in his hand. Okay, that wasn't what I thought it was. That is actually him referencing God had said to Moses. But then the phrase you're talking about here, the Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Paro all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Paro, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go, that he might worship me. But you refused to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place along the way. So yeah, there's there's no response. Not necessarily that the Hebrew demands a response. Uh, but yeah, and what's interesting is, is there any bearing, and I think some of our conversation we're going to have about the Exodus later is going to play back into this. There seems to be a real immediate bearing of what God just told him about. Tell Pero this about his firstborn son. And then and then Moses hasn't even taken care of business with his firstborn son. Like if you were to look at Exodus uh, 7 verse 1, uh, God is going to tell Moses, Moses, I need you to go be the message. Like I'm going to make you as God for Pharaoh. Like I, I don't need you to send Pharaoh a message. I don't need you to bring, I don't need you to be a messenger. I need you to be the message. Um, and yet here is Moses on the way to be the message. And he doesn't even have his own, he hasn't even seized his own identity as a member of this covenant family. Uh, and yet God is setting this whole thing up about firstborn sons. So I think there's, there is something interesting there. Let me ask you this. Are there any, is there any phrases or references in this story that stick out to you as being like, okay, that's weird. Well, so yeah, right after that, it is weird that God was about to kill Moses in the first place. Right. That doesn't really seem normal. Right. Um, and just that whole paragraph, uh, Zippor took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. That seems very strange. Yes. Um, and then she says, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And, I mean, it says right after that, the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. So you do the replacement. Surely you are a circumcision to me. That doesn't make any more sense than right. the original phrase. Right. So I don't, I don't understand really anything that's happening in that paragraph. Right. Well, and the interesting thing, you talked about p- touching the feet. Now, there's a couple things that could be going on there. We'll just talk about in passing. One of those uh, feet can be in Hebrew idiom for uh, other body parts. So in the Hebrew, often your feet can also symbolize uh, your, your male sex organ. And so it could be that she touched uh, Moshe's uh, circumcision with her son's foreskin. Possibility. The other possibility somebody pointed out is they thought of Avraham walking the blood path. And uh, I can't say I can make that direct connection there, but I do find interesting that she takes this bloody foreskin and touches his feet. Um, Maybe there's something there. Uh, But yes, this phrase, bridegroom of blood, and then it shows up like immediately following, like really, like it's already an odd statement. Unless there's something in the Hebrew we don't understand, it's such a weird thing to say. And then it repeats it, almost like it really wants you to catch it. And we've we've heard this before. Like when the author does this, you definitely want to pay attention. And so if we were to look, uh, next slide there you got, we have the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word there is chathan. And chathan translates bridegroom of blood. Uh, it also can mean son-in-law. Uh and you can kind of see the connection there. You can see how a bridegroom of blood, or uh, let me reverse that. You can see how a son-in-law is a bridegroom of blood. And the blood thing would have to, we'd have to get into some more context of weddings and how the bridegroom of blood plays into that. But 
your son-in-law is the bridegroom of blood for that daughter. So this word chathan actually only shows up four times in all of Torah. Chathan shows up twice in this story. You just notice both references. And it showed up in one other story, and it didn't show up as bridegroom of blood. It showed up as son-in-law, but it's the only other place where this word shows up. Can you remember where that might be? Well, perhaps not, because we kind of skipped over the story, right? We sure did. What story was it? Sodom and Gomorrah. That's right. So when we went through this story, I said I wanted to take a pause, and I wanted to a pass, if you will, and I wanted to deal with the stories of the wrathful God later. Well, now that time has come because we've just found the two stories of God's wrath. There will be some other random stories and exceptions, a Sabbath breaker that's going to get stoned, a blasphemer in Leviticus. Like There's going to be some random exceptions, but these are the two big stories. Uh, and if we were to include Noah where you look at stories and you're like the wrath of God that just destroys huge groups of people. You've got Noah, but we already dealt with that one. And we showed how Noah wasn't what we thought it was. The only other stories we got left is Sodom and Gomorrah and the Exodus. And in fact, these two stories are linked directly by this word, Hathan. So I wanted to show you that, in fact, there's some more words that link these two stories together and try to make uh, some observations and try to grab a conclusion before we end our podcast today about this wrathful God. And I think this is important because there's such a, uh, there's such an assumption that goes out there that the God of the Old Testament was full of anger and the God of the Old Testament is full of wrath and the God of the New Testament is just loving and he's Jesus-y. But the God of the Old Testament is all, let him burn and kill them all. And, and what I wanted to point out as we've walked through this story is in fact, I've seen the exact opposite. I've seen nothing but a God of patience and a God of love, a God of acceptance And there's only two stories, like count them, that's two. There's only two stories where I'm seeing a wrathful God. Now, it doesn't mean I can just ignore them, but I wanted to put it in their proper context. And now I want to look at them directly. And so there's actually four words, and I got to give a shout out here in the podcast to Reed Hazelbaker, because it's Reed that actually found all these connections uh, maybe three or four years ago. Um, uh, Reed was writing out the text as a spiritual discipline, and he loved to try to catch things that he had seen before and do some studies. And he had, he actually found and pointed out to me, there are four words that come out of these two stories almost exclusively, at least in their beginnings. So I wanted to point them out to you. The first one we've already pointed out is Hathan, which is bridegroom of blood or son-in-law. Now, Hathan appears in Genesis 19, verse 12 and 19, 14. That's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and his sons-in-law. So what I, want, what I want to point out is in the Lot story, it appears two verses apart. So, so Hathan shows up, bang, bang, rapid fire. And then it doesn't show up again until Exodus 4, verse 25, and 4, verse 26. And it shows up, obviously, again, just immediately in that verse that we're studying today with the bridegroom of blood. So bang, bang, and then it shows up later, bang, bang. And those are the only four references of Hathan in all of Torah. Okay. Now, the other word that shows up is the word rasha. I believe rasha shows up eight times in Torah. It's a word that means wicked, but there are lots of words that mean wicked. This kind of wickedness seems to be unique. Now, the first four references, even though it shows up eight times in Torah, the first four references show up in these two stories. The first two are in the Sodom and Gomorrah story. It shows up in Genesis 18 with the visitors that have visited Avraham shows up in 1823, and it shows up in 1825. 
And then it shows up the next two times that Rasha makes an appearance. It makes an appearance in Exodus 2.13 and Exodus 9.27, which are spaced apart more, but do serve as bookends to the Exodus story. The next word we find is the word Ze'ekah. Now, Ze'ekah is a cry. It means to cry out. Uh, and Ze'ekah is a particular kind of cry. Ze'ekah is the cry of oppression. It's not, the, it's not just the cry of a sad child. It's not the cry of grief or mourning. Ze'ekah is the cry that comes because you have been unjustly treated. Like you are, you are the victim of injustice. Somebody is taking advantage of you and you cry out. And there are two different Ze'ekahs in the Hebrew. They have two different Hebrew spellings. Um, but this form of Ze'ekah appears five times. And this form of Ze'ekah appears twice in the Sodom and Gomorrah story, chapter 18, verse 21, chapter 19, 19 verse 13. There's a middle reference, which happens to be Esau, when he finds out that Jacob has stolen the blessing. He lets out a Ze'ekah. And then the next two references is going to be Exodus 3, verse 7, and 3, verse 9. So again, we have another word that shows up, with a slight exception, in only these two stories. And then the other one is the word, uh, the last one that we'll talk about here is the word shafat. Now, shafat means to judge. Uh, It's going to show up a lot. Shafat's going to show up all over Torah. But again, the first references show up in these two stories. Um, Genesis 18.26 and 19.9, Exodus 2.14 and 5.21. Now we'll talk about Shaphat and then we'll try to put all this stuff together. Shaphat is, it means to judge. But in the ancient world, uh, one of the the justice, like one of the words for justice that we'll talk about a lot is the word mishpat. Um, There are a couple different words in the Hebrew. One is din and one is mishpat. Now mishpat is restorative justice. Um, I have a friend who is a, a lawyer and listens to this podcast, actually. So, hey. Uh, but uh, he he pointed out to me as he was going through school at U of I that they have a um, they have a, a, a Native American tribe that comes in every year to do a little uh, council, and the law students all go to to listen to this. Uh, I can't remember if it's a conference or what they're doing, but they come in and they talk about law. And one of the things that they often point out, I've been told, is that. Um, our American uh, system of justice is one of the few systems of justice of, of justice that are is built upon retribution. We have retributive justice, so we have a justice system that's supposed to try to detour the criminal by retributive justice. Um, and what's so common around most of the rest of the world is we is they have restorative systems of justice. They have systems of justice that are supposed to put the world back together. Well, of the ancient Eastern world, this is definitely true. Um, We are used to, if we were to hear the word to judge, uh, we would immediately start thinking retribution. We would immediately start thinking judgments being handed out, which is how we see the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. But in fact, the word shafat has nothing to do with, uh, I I can't say nothing to do with retributive justice, but the word shafat is driven by an understanding of putting things back in their proper place. It is a restorative justice that is etymologically linked to the understanding of mishpat. In fact, if you look at shafat, you can see that if you put the M in front of it, it becomes mishpat in its consonants. So shafat and mishpat come from the same root word. 
uh, it's the same idea. Mishpat is everything in its proper place. Shafat is to judge in such a way that you put things back. So the question that I always love to ask about the Sodom and Gomorrah story is why is God there? Why did God show up? And people think God showed up because of the sin of the people of Sodom. And if that's what we think, we need to go back and read the story again, because that's not what God says. God says, I'm here. Do you remember why God says I'm here, Brent, in the Sodom and Gomorrah story? It's our other word. Yeah. What, what word he is that? He the cry, the zekah. Yeah. He's here because he's heard the cry. He's not here because he's seen the sin of Sodom. He's here because he's heard the cry. And that's why he's here to shafat. So I have this statement down here. When there is a wickedness, and that, and we talk about wickedness, that wickedness is a, rasha is the kind of wickedness that causes the ze'ekah. There are other Hebrew words for wickedness. Um, the opposite of righteousness, uh, sin. There's all kinds of words for those things. Rasha is a kind of wickedness that causes the ze'ekah. And that's what's going on in Sodom. And so if we had to take the story of Sodom and Gomorrah or the story of the Exodus, and I, if I had a, an assignment where I was like, you can only use these three ideas to interpret the story. How would we interpret the story? And out of that question, I have this statement here. When there is a wickedness that causes the bitter cry of oppression, God will hear their cry and he will come to give judgment that restores order to the chaos. When there's a wickedness, a rasha, that leads to the zekah, God will hear that zekah, and he will come to shafat, and he will, he will render judgment that restores order to the chaos. Like God says this, uh, using the other zekah that we referenced, the different form of the same word, uh, God talks about in Exodus. He says, uh, if you take the widow's cloak and don't give it back to her, and she cries out to me, I will hear her cry, and you will pay that penalty. If you take, um, uh, if you don't pay that worker his wage, uh, it, I will hear the cry, and I will come and deal with it. Like this is just the very nature of who God is, and so when we look at these stories, we understand that God is God is not here to deal with sin. Are these really stories about wrath or are these stories about love? I know as a parent, I understand this. I have two, I have two children. And if my two children were just beating the tar, if like one of my kids was just beating the tar out of one of my other kids, I would put a stop to it. <laughs> and if I was a good parent in that moment, it would not be because I just want to let that bad kid have it. It would be because I want to rescue the other child. Now, make no mistake, there will be consequences, there will be discipline, there will be proper boundaries, and all, all that kind of stuff will be a result and a consequence of that. But I wouldn't be there to deal out punishment. I would be there to save the situation, to restore order to chaos, and then to follow that up with discipline. And there is most definitely a difference between discipline and punishment, which parenting has taught me in a big, big way. On my bad days, I punish my kids. In my good days, I discipline them. And discipline comes from love, and punishment comes from anger. And, uh, and I think it's just important to see that as we go through. Even these two stories of wrath reinforce a God of love, because God isn't here to deal with the sin 
of Sodom. He's not here to deal with the sin of Egypt when you read the Passover story, and he, and he kills the firstborn children. He's not here to punish the Egyptians. He's here to save the oppressed because he's heard their cry. So we'll talk a lot, lot more about this in Bema. This is going to be a huge theme. Uh, so this isn't the only conversation we're going to have about it. We're going to talk a lot about what happens when we become the anti-story and what happens when we lose the plot of God's story and we lose the heart of God. Uh, but this kind of gets us started. It opens the door and sends us on our way. So anyway, we've got, uh, I think that kind of wraps up a already long conversation for today. That's not too bad. Not too bad. We're at the 40 minute mark. That's not so bad. Um, we do have something unique coming up here uh, next week. Uh, what we're going to do for our class um, is that we're going to watch a DVD. Uh, one of the things that I like to do as we take a kind of a break here before we jump into the text of the Exodus is I like us to understand visually, uh, I like us to understand what Egypt was, um, not just where it was and not just its history and not just its physicality, but I like us to understand the picture of Egypt. And so one of the ways that I do that is I show uh, a DVD that has some teachings from my teacher, uh, Ray Vanderlaan, and we're going to do that. We're going to watch three lessons uh, in class. Um, And the problem is, is for those of you that listen to our podcast, um, we can't do that because of copyright issues. We're not going to be able to just play the lesson audio on the podcast or something like that. Uh, So I want to let you know that that's what's going to happen for next week. Uh, we're going to be watching a DVD for next week's class. And because of copyright, we'll not be able to include it with a podcast. And so I wanted to give you the information. If you want to go find the video, buy the video, uh, you would not be disappointed. It would be a purchase that I think you would like, and then you may end up having to buy the whole rest of the series. Who knows? And we'll we'll have some links for it in the, for the show notes. Um, but it's called, it's from the series That the World May Know uh, by Ray Vanderlyn. And it's volume eight. I think that's called God Heard Their Cry. Yes, it title. is. And it's lessons one through three from that. Yep. Yep. So that's what we'll be doing. Uh, for those of you that either can't afford the video or can't find any way to watch it, uh, I've looked online. If you do find it, it's been pirated and it usually doesn't stay up for very long. So they're just really not out there. Sometimes you can find one being used as a promotional or something by the uh, the publishers. It's put out by Focus on the Family. Um, but you won't be able to find all three. So what we're going to do is our next podcast, we're actually going to try to summarize those conversations. So Brent and I will kind of go through those three lessons. We'll give a summary of what was talked about there. And uh, I'll give some thoughts as to what I hope the takeaway from those videos were. And um, if you're able to join us, you won't even have to listen to that podcast because you will have already seen the, the videos in person. And uh, you can use the podcast just to review or... Uh, or listen to that, or just not even listen at all. But for those that won't be able to join us, uh, we will have, we'll try to have a summary conversation that will help lead and guide our time together in that way. So you won't have to miss all of it. So just a heads up on what our next podcast will uh, entail. All right. I think that does it for this episode. If you live on the Palouse, we hope you join us for discussion groups in Moscow on Tuesday or in Pullman on Wednesday, where we'll be uh, going over those videos and discussing. If you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. You can find me on Twitter at EIBCB. And you can find more details about the show at BamaDiscipleship.com. Thanks for joining us on the Bama Podcast, and we'll talk to you again soon. Bama.